Well, hi, everybody. It's Kim Winter, uh, CEO of Logistics Executive Group. My great pleasure to be here again hosting another session with uh, uh, a guest business leader and supply chain leader from somewhere in the world. And today it's my, my pleasure, as I say, to introduce uh, Philip Parsons from uh, Sydney. Philip is the uh, General Manager for Logistics for Coca-Cola Amatil uh, in Sydney. He's also the uh, President of a very a venerable rugby club in Sydney called the Warringah Rats, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, later, a championship winning club. He's also uh, on the board of uh, New and Sydney Rugby, and uh, he has got a glittering sporting career, which we'll hear a little bit about later on. Uh, Philip, welcome, Sydney. No, thanks for having us, and uh, what an introduction, Kim. Very, uh, <laughs> certainly polished it up. Very good. I was practicing that, Philip. And of course, well uh, a bit of disclosure. Philip, I met you, you was, I guess, probably um, 20, 22 years ago, as I recall it, on an aircraft flying from uh, Melbourne to Sydney. You've got an absolutely shocking memory. It's actually <laughs> 32 years ago. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, forgive them, though. We have all aged considerably in, um, in that <laughs> Very time. Very good. So. So, Philip, we're going to talk to you a little bit about, uh, as we do with our guests, we're really interested to hear about your upbringing. Uh, my understanding is that uh, from many of the stories that I've heard and uh, much that I see on LinkedIn, you're a very proud Otago man. And uh, maybe you can tell our, uh, our, our audience uh, a little bit about your upbringing and where Otago is and what it's all about. Yeah, I will. So, uh, yeah, very proud uh, Otago man, Highlanders man. I, um, I come from an incredibly small little town. It's sort of 3,000 feet above sea level called Naseby in uh, central Otago, you know, one of those wonderful old gold mining towns and, and that district around, more famous now for its red wine, its Pinoir, than I think, you know, through central Otago. It runs about 200 k's east of Queenstown, um, up in the mountains, those two pubs, Cricket team, rugby team in those days. It's got a sort of curling rink now. They're actually a 12-month-a-year curling rink. Uh, I was born there. My, my father was a rabbiter, um, ran the rabbit board there, and he's, he's long gone now. But um, I had a wonderful childhood in that town, you know, a hundred of us. You know, like the school had about 20 kids, and then we were bussed off to the big school and ran fairly. And uh, I just had a wonderful, wonderful childhood up there. Yeah, good stuff. And so at what stage did uh, did it come time to leave uh, what was effectively a very rural area and, as you say, now very famous because of Queenstown and the Deep South in, uh, yep. in New Zealand, a big tourist centre, and, of course, with the current conditions globally, property prices in that part of the world are going through the roof because it, uh, yeah. it, uh, it is God's own country, as many Kiwis will say. But, uh, so what was the decision to leave and what was that all about? Where were you educated and how did you end up in Australia? So I ended up at uh, Manitoto Area School, left school pretty early to be a motor mechanic. Um, had the sort of starting of a reasonable rugby career. I was sort of born big and lumpy and, you know, sort of angry mountain man type and um, had this great opportunity to go and play rugby in Dunedin for Dunedin Marist and in those days rugby was amateur and I, I landed there from from the country to the big city of Dunedin and they had traffic lights and elevators and stuff and it was, you know, it was a pretty exciting time and I got through and I was, I was playing first grade for Dunedin Marist and in those days you actually played with all blacks, you know, Frank Oliver would run out and you had, 
you know, Gary Goodfellow and you had others there. Gary Sayre, I remember, was playing for the other clubs. And it was a great time in that, that early, early 78 to sort of 81 time. And um, I did something really stupid. I um, I ended up getting a, a quite a large – I got a bit angry one day and got quite a large suspension. I don't think I've ever shared this with you. And um, so I had a couple, of t- a couple of weeks on the sideline. And I'd met a guy previously um, when I'd been over in England from Warrnambool in Australia. And um, in those days, I'd written him a letter and he said, well, you know, and I was, I was doing a ride at rugby till the sort of that moment. And I ended up coming over to Australia to play for South Warrnambool to play Aussie Rules. And uh, quite hysterical, really. You know, I was six foot four, I was 110, then quite fit. So I suppose I sort of looked apart and um, had this trial with Fitzroy, and they realised that I couldn't catch and I couldn't catch and I couldn't kick. And I wasn't much used to anybody, but I was a big lump. So I ended up getting a couple of seasons for South Warrnambool playing Aussie Rules and uh, had a great time there. Um, and then ended up in Perth and uh, answered an ad. I said, I can't keep doing this anymore, I'm not going anywhere. And ended up going to Perth and and in those days, TNT were big, big sponsors of rugby union in Australia. People might remember the referees running around with TNT on the back of them and um, got over to Perth and um, oddly enough, didn't end up working for TNT, ended up working for Main Nicholas in those days. And almost sort of half the rugby world worked for Main Nicholas and throwing boxes and express freight sheds and yeah, that's right. lots of Kiwis and South Africans. That's how I started my career to become a logistician. Wow. Do you, and, do adventures uh, along the way there, short and yeah, And if I track through your career, you've always been pretty well at the front of the pack, Phil. Uh, the fact that not just the fact that you're six foot four and weigh a couple of tons, uh, just the, the fact you've always been in leadership roles. And you, you seem to have carried that through. Uh, say you, you're on the board of, uh, of Sydney Rugby, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the, you're the president of Warringah Rats and took them to a championship from nowhere a few years ago and I happened to be in Australia at the time and uh, and came along to yeah. a championship game. It was glorious days right. uh, for a working-class suburb and, and all of yeah. the above. Um, but you also, your personal sporting career included being Mr New South Wales, which is the most populous uh, state yeah. in Australia. Do you want to talk to us about that, Philip? I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. There's some photos around somewhere of the old trophy. So I, um, I, I, <laughs> I, um, I played a lot of rugby, but I bucketed myself up a bit and thought I'd go to the gym. And um, I've got all those lumpy central Otago bodies that reacts well to lamb chops for breakfast and the uh, lamb chops for lunch and started throwing a bit of tin around in the gym and thought if I'm going to do this, I might as well polish it up a bit and see how I go on stage. So me and another Kiwi guy thought we'd enter ourselves in a couple of bodybuilding competitions. And um, I guess, you know, it sort of all looks a bit odd up there, I suppose. But the reality is it was the hardest I'd ever trained, to be honest, in my life. I, was, um, I really trained. I'd, I'd, take, I'd taken a few years off work. I was doing an MBA in logistics at the time at Sydney Uni. And I thought, well, I'm doing this. I'll, um, I'll start throwing the weight around. And I sort of reacted well to it and, Got all up, much to the merriment of my father. He never sort of couldn't live with it a bit. There's a few photos. He actually turned up to one of the competitions. <laughs> and um, no, it was a good time, good experience. Very disciplined sport, by the way. He sort of had is. three minutes of glory on stage for, you know, five hours of training a day for two years. So, yeah. no, it was good. 
No, I understand. And uh, look, just for, for a more serious issue for, for a moment, you've taken that leadership in sport and especially with Warringah Rats Rugby Club um, to some very interesting um, corporate responsibility stuff, CSR. You've, as the president of the club, uh, you, for the last decade or so that I'm aware of, you've been mounting um, trips, annual trips offshore to many wild and wonderful places around the world to help yeah. develop rugby, to work with impoverished or uh, less than less than fortunate communities uh, with rugby training and taking supplies and educating kids in, yeah. in far-flung places, including, of course, as a disclosure, as a disclosure or a disclaimer that uh, you guys were, were awesome in 2011, as I seem yeah. to recall it, when yeah, you probably. mounted a trip to, to Kenya to support uh, yeah. an organisation which I'm the chairman of, which was Oasis yeah. Africa, which has educated yeah. over 8,000 yeah. kids in the slums of, uh, of Kenya. Wonderful. Tell us about that whole project and why you did that and what it's meant in terms of leadership in the club and development of some of your young players. Um, we call it books and boots, and it was always about a couple of things. One, it was about personal development for the young men and women of our club, but it was also about showing them that, there's a, yeah, we're very fortunate here in the island on the northern beaches of Sydney, and you know it's a bit of a, it's an isolated, it's an insular peninsula. They actually call us. It's a beautiful part of the world, but it was a great opportunity for us to go. Well, how can we make a difference? How can we have some fun? But how can we actually be involved in the personal development of these young men and women at our club, and mix those two together and share the joy of rugby, but also leave a difference behind. And we sort of and we built that um, books and boots philosophy. And to your point, Cam, we've done over something like twenty thousand books, um, thousands of rugby balls. We've been to we started off in Kenya. Your wonderful association to West Africa, and we went to Canberra to school. It was a life changing. I mean, two of those guys turned around and went straight back to work for NGOs and in Africa. If you it was how. The impact it had on people. Wow. Kenya, we've been to Cuba, Fiji, Chile, China. Um, got to go through them all. Sri Lanka, yeah, Alice Springs. Locally, it was a that was a great one too. Probably missed a few out there. Um, and ten of them. So, you know, if every every single tour we have, the, the young men or women come back different. They come back certainly come back more humble, and they certainly come back realizing that. You know, we all need to contribute in this life to make a difference, and if you can, you should. So we've made, we've built schools, we've put water tanks in Sri Lanka, we put the bridge over the River of Poo in Kenya for those kids so they could get into school and, you know, wonderful library we built there. It's still got the rat's logo on the wall. Correct. You know, it's been, um, uh, you know, it's not, it's a funny, you know, we always have two games of rugby. So you have that sort of the rugby part and we run school clinics and then we get involved in the charitable part. And, of course, there's the, there's the nights off where you go out and hydrate with the locals and have some laughs and then back it up again with a kid's clinic. I don't think there's been a single tour where we, we, we go to places where you wouldn't normally go as a tourist and it's not a single tour where people don't end up in tears with the you know, the harshness of life and um, it's a pretty tough world out there and we're very blessed on the northern beaches and they certainly come back. I think they come back more rounded individuals and certainly more humble from it. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was awesome. I had the uh, the honour of uh, being with you guys on that trip for a couple of weeks mm -hmm. or so and uh, 
just seeing how the impact on on mm. players and people is like 60 or 70 people, I think, in the end you yeah. took over there. And the impact you had on those communities and uh, mm. people to this day, Oasis Africa is still booming and going stronger than ever, as I say, right. in, in Kenya. And uh, people still talk about it. The rugby jerseys are still there, the libraries, the bridges. Uh, these things make a huge social impact. So, uh, yeah, well done on, on the leadership in that space. And I know you guys are a shining light in the Australian rugby scene for some of the stuff that you've done. Um, turning, to, turning to business then, uh, you, you say you came from Maine Nicholas. Maine Nicholas, to those of uh, our audience who are not familiar with Australia, was, was one of the founding logistics companies in Australia. Many of uh, Australia and, and APAC's uh, leading senior executives these days uh, all had their, their upbringings in Maine Nicholas. There are, there are hundreds of senior executives came and spawned out of that area, out of that company. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your role is now um, and how the last year or so has been, what ch- what changes you've seen in the in the sector, what's the consumer behaviour been like, um, yeah. how's that impacted on Coke Amatil, you're the GM of logistics, very yeah. dynamic business, beverages, of course. Um, tell us a little bit about what's been happening in the industry and what you see as the trends moving forward. Yeah, I, I, you know, very – thanks for that. That's um, some questions. I'll try and cover them all. I probably – I'll start back in March last year, I think, Kim, when we first went into our first COVID lockdown. You know, I've, I've had a few senior roles in business and I've worked for most of the you know, powerful men in Australia at some time or another. And I've experienced most business issues. I've had a, you know, quite a broad range of experience, but this was all new to me and it was something that I had to um really spend quite a few years reflecting on daily how we're going to get through it. So when it struck, I really wasn't just about protecting the business. You know, when we start talking about mental health and resilience and, you know, that we really started to go into some places where I really wasn't equipped at the time, I think, to handle it. So it wasn't always about trucks and sheds and supply chain. It was about our people. And I'm very proud of the fact that Coke, we, we didn't um, lose any people through COVID. We certainly didn't you know, take 10% off everybody or we, we work really hard to pull out as much cost as we can without impacting people's lives. But the, but the mental health impact on the staff to this day is, is still there. We're not suffering like other countries. I acknowledge that. But still, I think it was something that um, blindsided me a bit. And I'm very fortunate at Coke we had plenty of, great opportunities, there's some great coaching opportunities and, and resources available to us through that. Um, that that isolation for people, where a lot of the younger people were stuck at home, their family in Australia. So I, I should explain, I look after the logistics part of CCA, you know, 700 trucks, 54 sheds. Um, there's a variety of infrastructure that sits under that, a control tower with sort of 60 people in it that manages the data and processes the orders that come in by the sales team, and it all changed, to your point. The shape of it all changed dramatically overnight, but our volume didn't move. It moved to retail, it moved to the groceries, and the grocery stores couldn't cope. And how might I say, you know, why is it important that Coke, why is it suddenly you know, a critical product Coke? Well, it's not just, we have a wide range of SKUs, by the way, a couple of thousand SKUs in our network. We also work for Veeam, Centurion, Monster. But it's also about protecting that 3,500 people's jobs, as well as the shareholders' investment and any, but, but also making sure people, you know, 
carried on their lives in some sort of normality. And uh, it was chaos. It wasn't. It was really difficult. We couldn't get into sheds. We, you know, there was just panic buying was was an interesting phenomenon here. I'm not sure if you've seen it for Europe and Dubai, yeah. but panic buying here was just crazy. And then and you and you had a lot of um, sorry, and you you had a lot of lockdown. I mean, Australia yeah. and New Zealand are pretty, you know, yep. famous for for the. It's still till now uh, about the control of COVID. But uh, you had a lot of lockdowns, a lot of hard lockdowns. Uh, yeah. I think warehouses were limited to 30% of, yep. of staff. So, I mean, how did they, how were they going to get through borders? We had, yeah. we have, even now today, I have pickers in the warehouses in Victoria, it's 35 degrees wearing face masks, picking cases. Now, they've been doing that on and off for a very long time. The resilience of that team is fantastic. It wasn't just the lockdown of that. Through all of this, we had border disruption. It's five hours now to clear the border. There's a five-hour queue between Melbourne and Adelaide today, waiting time to get across the border in Adelaide today from Melbourne. Five-hour wait. And there's a sort of logbook, there's driving hour restrictions in Australia. And at the same time, we had industrial action on the wharfs. So not only was there a global problem with the balancing of global network supply chains, we took there was industrial action happened at the wharfs at the same time. So all of a sudden the arterial supply chain, the arteries of, of supply chain in Australia become very clogged up. Yeah. And today it's no different. And uh, it was interesting for us. And I think where peak was what we call peak, which is Christmas here, had a very funny shape to it. We we lost sales in the middle of the CBD, but we had more sales 300 kilometres out from Sydney. So in Sydney, Australia, in Australia, about 300 k's out from every capital city is where people feel safe going on holiday because they might not get caught in a COVID lockdown. So, you know, it all moved and we, we had to restructure our network and our line hall and, you know, bigger trucks out to little towns and, and everyone else did too. Everyone was very collaborative through it all. Still now, still today. But it's jammed. We are completely jammed. Trains are all full. There's no coastal shipping for Australia. It doesn't start till March. Yeah. Um, we're, we're jammed tight. So you, so that's interesting reflection for for people who are not used to that uh, Australian environment as a, as, a, as a bit of a case study, if you like. Yeah. Um, let, let's just drill down for a little minute on um, on you in in leadership. I mean, as you mentioned, you you mentioned before, you've worked for some of the biggest players in Australia. You worked for a guy called Kerry Packer, who is legend and iconic in Australia. Um, he's passed away now, but the, the Packer family still is uh, in the news big time, uh, even in the last 24 hours. Yeah. Um, you've worked for Toll, which is the biggest public, was mm. the biggest publicly listed uh, logistics company in Australia, now owned by Japan Post. Um, the Linfox family, which is iconic yeah. in Australia, the largest privately yeah. owned logistics company probably, or certainly in Australia, but more yeah. than far in the far, in, into Asia as well. And uh, you, you as a leader, you've developed, I mean, one of the things I've observed about you over the years, you've got a fairly well-developed uh, EQ. Uh, you, you really relate to people in a big way. That's common to you across yeah. a lot of social activities yeah. I know you've been involved in. How have you in the last year had to really draw resources from within yourself? How have you been tested and how do you think you've reacted? You were just saying oh. before that, you know, you maybe weren't prepared like many leaders weren't. How, what have you drawn on to get yourself through and where are you going now? I'm more interested mm. now about where are you going, yeah. what are the leadership attributes that you're using yeah. and what are you projecting forward for, the, for your capabilities? 
for my, you know, we're talking about capability, but I think it's all, it's about there are two parts to this for me that came out of this for me that I need to work on, and, I, and, I'll, and I'm quite simplistic in its view, right? There's ruthless prioritisation of your, what you need to do. To, to You fish with the fish out. So that ruthless prioritisation of what you do in a day became critical because time was just consumed. And I get that when you look at those people, and I work for Coates Hire and for the Stokes family too. So when I look at all those great leaders, the Packers, the Foxes, all those guys ruthlessly prioritised their life. They fish with the fish out. And, you know, think about that that application to that for me. It's the same at Coke. We had to really ruthlessly prioritise. And there's another thing I took to my staff about is when something goes wrong, you need to step through it and make another decision. You don't make – stuff in life, things are going to go wrong, right? And, Kim, you and I, you and I probably cut from the same mould in this. Both of us don't reflect on it for very long and we move on pretty quickly in our lives. You know, and even in our personal lives, because you know you need to move on. And, and when things go wrong in business, you need to keep moving on. You need to make more decisions. And we triangulate those decisions. I talk about two-way decisions, Kim. I talk about reversible decisions and decisions that aren't reversible. And if it's a reversible decision, make it quickly. And then if it's wrong, make another decision and keep making them. If it's an unreversible decision like we're going to invest $80 million in a shed, make sure you get plenty of people in a room and make the right decision because you can't reverse that one. But if it's about moving from road to rail to sea to train, whatever it might be, they're all reversible decisions, so make them quickly. So those two things for me, ruthlessly prioritise your time, fish with a fish out, and make sure that you're making decisions quickly, and if it's a wrong decision, make another one. Step through it. Don't. Mm-hmm. My old man had a great expression, it's a bit rude, but if you stand in dog shit, you don't walk it through the house and stomp on it complaining you've stood in dog shit. <laughs> you wash it off your boot outside and you move on with your life. You know, you got to move on with your life. Don't stand it and trample it all through the house and complain about it. Get on with it. Yeah, so Definitely. they were the two two learnings for me, I think. Okay, good. Well, as you say, very simplistic. I mean, uh I think, you know, most Kiwis are fairly close, if not in a, a rural yeah. b- upbringing and background. And That's right. those simple country sort of views in life can, can sta- stand you in a good stead moving forward. Um, just just reflecting broader on maybe on the parachute, overlooking the industry in, a, in Australia or industry that you have uh, influence in, what do you see happening in logistics? Any major trends happening in logistics, yeah. whether it's being consumer-driven or supplier-driven, or what's happening in the next 12 months? What, what, might, what, what might we see uh, between now and December as major trends happening in the market and logistics and supply? Oh, a couple of things I see on about interstate. We do interstate. That's travelling between Perth and Sydney and up the coast that interstate capacity is full and it shouldn't be full in January and February. It should be half empty and it's full. So traditionally we'd be sending stuff by boat, by some answer, sort of $1,200 a box to send it by boat from Sydney to Perth. We're now spending $20,000 to send it by truck to Perth. So that arterial clog, it's completely clogged. So putting that aside and that network design change, it's going to be about people, Kim. I, 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 there's two things that have come out of this for me. One is labour hire companies, and you and I, you know, I used to use you as a before. I think we had a labour hire part to your business. I think the time 
is coming for a change in that model. We've seen that through COVID, having people working at multiple sites, moving around. There's also a sort of a dilemma for me personally that probably came to light COVID. Well, lots, whatever was bad in COVID got worse in COVID. So when you went into COVID with a model that was slightly flawed or a business that was slightly unwell or a relationship that was a bit broke, when we went into COVID, it sort of highlighted it. I think it's highlighted that that model's broken. And it's also a little bit unjust too, and it's probably the bit of the socialism coming out of me, but I think it's time that we moved away from labour-high companies and gave people better lives in that space. And I'd be look, I'm certainly looking at our model to decide you know, how much we rely on them and perhaps moving back to a more fairer model of employing people direct. And then it aligns up with our technology changes this year are going to be dramatic. So you have this capability problem as well across the top. You have a capability problem. You have a labour model that maybe has been tested to be seen to be flawed and a little bit unfair. You put the two over the top really comes back to people and investment in people. And I think we've got on foot something like $45 million worth of supply chain technology impacting our sheds this year, which is a transport management system and awareness through SAP and some automation in our sheds. And I've got to invest in people to use that technology. So, you know, and I think we've got some subsidies coming off here in March. The government's provided subsidies. We don't we don't get it at Coke, but JobKeeper, they call it. But... Um, for me, that'll be a big trend, labour, quality labour and holding on to it. Yeah, sorry, Bud and Phil, but talk to me a little bit about just briefly digitisation. What's what's yep. happening with, digi- you know, is digitisation going to help your business moving forward over the next 12 months or so, or you've, you've been a big adopter previously? Where, where are you positioned in that, uh, in that whole uh, line of attack? There's two parts of it to us. I think it's a bit this customer facing, and that's certainly even today we've upgraded all of our online ordering, you know, apps on phones for our retailers to order product. We have, you know, touchless deliveries right now. We do all of those things. We've got connected callers, we call it. We're connecting all our fridges electronically to ordering systems so we can tell every time the doors open, what transactions can look like. But the digitisation at the back end, of course, is, is leaning into quicker reporting. Um, there's some new digitisation of some of the quality controls on our manufacturing lines that have, you know, cameras that capture dig- faults on labels or fill lines on bottles and things. So, you know, for us, it's a continual investment in that space. I don't know whether or not we've particularly doubled down this year because of COVID, but I think we have a strong pipeline of, of I don't know whether I can say we're at the pointy end of it, that's for sure, but we certainly, um, it's part of our ongoing strategy, but it has to be a business case. It just can't be for the sake of, wouldn't it be great to have one of those? Is it got to stand up on its own? Okay. Um, I get I get a bit lost on some of it. I, I just sit on the Urban Hub. I sit on some, some, um, some think tank groups and people talk about driverless trucks and, you know, as soon as they got a driverless truck's fine, they need nanotechnology and cartons so they can walk into the stores on their own. So when they've got the dri- nanotechnology ready for the cases, <laughs> I'll be using the driverless truck. So the digital technology, I'm waiting for it. But in the meantime, I still need um, I still need people. Awesome. Yeah, yeah interesting viewpoints. Thanks. Uh, look, I, I like to wrap up by asking all of our guests a, a couple of uh uh, snapfire questions. Uh, one of them is um, about uh, your your tips on on leadership. 
So we all know there's a lot of people in the world doing it real, real tough at the moment. Um, there's a lot of companies that have been behind the, the eight ball. A lot of companies have been in the front of it and, and, and benefited. We've seen e-commerce explode. We've seen a lot of upside in technology and, and all of those stories that we've seen on the business pages globally. Uh, I, want, I want to draw you just to the, the issue of, of people coming in, if young people coming in, and of course, one of the upsides, if you can call it that, out of the last 12 months or so, is the fact that supply chain has probably never had such a high profile, whether it's right. about e-commerce, the, the blast in e-commerce, uh, yep. now vaccine distribution, what have you. Uh, yep. And I think supply chain logistics leaders globally are looking to seize on that to attract people mm. now that people have got more visibility on what supply mm. chain does and what it's all about. And it's not just yep. a backroom um, set of circumstances that any business might be dealing with, but it's a driver in business. If you were to give uh, one or two tips to, to young people wanting to get into logistics as, a, as an industry, as opposed to many of us and many of my guests, including yourself and myself, who just ha happened to wander into supply chain many yeah, decades right. ago, uh, what yeah. tips would you give people in, in looking into it as a career? Oh, I think, well, first of all, there's plenty of tertiary, you know, tertiary courses available globally, get yourself in as a graduate somewhere. I think, I think one of the big things for me is if I'm looking at bringing people into the business at any level, I always say just hire the smartest people you can find and and they'll and I always say play team sport because they're used to being coached and they're used to a referee, which always helps. But I, what I find interesting is that it, one of the big skills I look for with young people when I bring them is their ability to look outside to look in. So people will come to the say, I don't have any experience in supply chain, but it, you but if if you can demonstrate that you've been looking out to look in, if you build a knowledge base up of what's happening in the industry, I'm always that understanding, because it's not always about benchmarking against yourself internally. It's about what's happening out there, and there's never been a better time in the world to do that. That You're a great podcast. There's plenty of stuff online. There's, you know, there's, everyone knows this, the whole digital knowledge building experience. So... Get yourself, get yourself, a, you know, there's plenty of tertiary courses around transport. Get yourself in at the right level, but always look outside to look in. Always be standing in front of me going, did you know what, you know, Pepsi are doing? Do you know what Mars are doing? Do you know they've got one of these? You know, always be demonstrating. Don't don't go into businesses and benchmark against yourself. Benchmark against the outside world for the first tip. And then... I've got some wonderful young people that drive me nuts that do that to me all day, and we've really grown from that, I think. I think our, I think our supply chain is certainly fitter and more flexible because of that. Awesome. Hey, Philip, really enjoyed catching up with you. It's been it's been way too long, and, uh, I mean, your your career and your life has been all about leadership and uh, and pushing the boundaries, uh, and you've, you've taken a few tumbles along the way and always managed to get yourself back up. <laughs> and uh, but you've always been larger than life uh, in in all the business and social environments that uh, that I've observed over the Thanks, years. Uh, I can't help but think that politics must be calling you somewhere along the along the lines. Mayor of Mayor of, of Sydney, maybe one day. Who knows? Mayor of, Mayor of Dee Boy, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and and you, you know, I appreciate the kind words too. But your your charitable, you know, drivers. There's one. You're probably closer to the closer closer to heaven than I am, Kim. Boy, about it. A million miles, mate. You do. 
your whole life's been dedicated to serve. And, you know, even in your role now, you're part of giving growth to people and their roles and supporting them. And, and your work with Oasis Africa has changed the lives of so many people. And uh, you're certainly one step closer to heaven than me. So thank you, too, for all that work you do. No, awesome, Phil. Kind words and greatly appreciated. Uh, Philip Parsons uh, in Sydney, we're going to let you get on with your evening. Uh, we wish you well. Stay safe. Keep up the good job in Australia with what you guys are doing and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. To our audience, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, again, thanks, Phil. See you, guys. See you. Kia ora.